This letter that we call 1 Corinthians is actually most likely 2 Corinthians, and that 2 Corinthians is most likely 3 Corinthians. And we see in chapter 5 a reference to his previous letter that is found in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle or letter. So he's referring to a previous letter. So there is some background material that is important to keep in mind in this book and in this text in particular, yet if this text, um, well, this, this passage, this chapter is probably the reason for the whole letter being written in the first place. The other matters that are addressed throughout the book are important, but this is probably the most pressing, the most important, the most urgent, flashing red light on the dashboard of the car of the Corinthians and so this is a most serious and somber text. It is not one that um, most preachers would, would choose. They would not say, oh, that's my favorite chapter. I, I love to preach on it when I visit a church for the first time. In fact, it would be one that most preachers would skip if possible because you, you don't like to deal with things of this level of uh, seriousness or sobriety or um, even just not being G-rated. And there's children here, so how are we going to address this? But nevertheless, it is in our Bibles, and it is what we would call today 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we were in chapter 4 last week, so that brings us here to this text. I've divided this message into three points. The first is, number one, unholy people. Unholy people. This is in verses 1 through 5. Our text says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned. But he who has done this deed, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So first in verse one, we see the offender, the offender. What is this about? What is the the essence of the situation? Well, there is a man who has his father's wife which is a very nice way of saying he's committing incest. This is a man who is a professing Christian. He is part of that church, the Corinthian church. He claims to be a Christian, probably knows a lot, probably has his, his Hebrew Bible, his Old Testament in hand, and he's got some of the letters of Paul that have been written, and, and you know he's very knowledgeable, and he has a lot of facts in his brain. He's a professing Christian. He's a member of the church in Corinth. Yet he is committing this sexual immorality that our text says is so shocking, so surprising that it's not even named among the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't even do this. The Corinthians don't even do this. And if you remember from the video that I showed weeks ago when I was walking around Corinth and talking and just giving you the spiel that the tour guide gave, the word Corinthian was synonymous with a very sexually immoral person. So it'd be like, oh, well, 
that person is a Corinthian. And you knew what that meant. But this is a whole nother level. Sorry. A man has his father's wife. This language of a man having his father's wife seems to be a reference to his stepmother. And this is a shockingly brazen sin. Now, we are often tempted to think about sins in certain ways that are not true. I'm going to ask for a show of hands here. Have you ever heard someone say that all sins are equal? Raise your hand if you've heard this. It's a very common thought, but it's actually not true. It is not biblical. The Bible tells us that some sins are sins unto death. Our confession, the 1689, says that some sins are more heinous than others. So think with me about the man who threw his baby down a flight of stairs here in Hell's Kitchen this last week and then threw his girlfriend off the roof of a midtown hotel to her death. That happened. You might not have seen news headlines about it because of certain reasons, but that happened. And I assure you that that sin, that crime, has earned for him greater wrath on the day of judgment than the sin of a teenager or a child who steals a pack of gum from a street vendor's booth. These sins are not equally heinous. So if you are tempted to think, oh, well, all sins are the same. No, they're not. Yes, all sins are a sin against a holy God. Yes, certainly. And all sins are serious. But some sins are more heinous than others. And this one in particular is a shockingly serious sin. Paul addresses many things in this Corinthian church. He addresses many sins in many um, situations, but he doesn't address all of them. And this one is the most pressing, the most urgent It is a shockingly brazen sin. It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now, if that's not bad enough, beyond the offender, there's also verse two, secondly, those who approve. So it's not just that this guy's doing this thing and it's secret and it's, you know, his own, you know, hidden sin. No, everybody knows about it. The entire church knows about it, and they're fine with it. But it gets worse. They're not just fine with it. They're not just approving of it. But they brag about it. They're boastful. They're proud. Verse 2 says, you are puffed up. What does that mean? What, what, what does that look like? Well, that's them saying, hey, praise the Lord, we have grace. That grace covers this. This is an issue of what I call gospel abuse. 
What is gospel abuse? Well, gospel abuse is when people are proud of their sin, proud of the depths of their sin, and they use grace as an excuse or as a cover-up to say, hey, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. In fact, hey, it's, it's even, it's good. This is, this is something that Paul addresses in Romans 6. Should we sin that grace would abound? Absolutely not. God forbid, by no means, depending on which version you're reading. No, don't do it. When you do that, you're abusing the gospel. You're twisting the truth of the gospel into something incredibly evil. What else is gospel abuse? Well, gospel abuse looks like shallow apologies with no repentance and no genuine sorrow. You're confronted and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Make it stop, make it stop. In other words, get off my case, leave me alone. These people, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians, should have confronted this sin. They all knew it was happening. But instead, they praised it. They elevated it as a wonderful thing. And so the severity of this sin and this situation is escalated because it's not just the offender doing his sin and it's not just a secret sin, but it's a known sin. And then it's a known sin that the whole church is aware of and they're not just letting it slide. They're not just saying, you know, what are we going to do? We can't control the guy. We can't force him to... No, they're elevating it as an example. They're printing his testimony in the church bulletin and saying, look at this wonderful thing. Look how great Jesus is that this is a story in our church. What does this look like practically speaking in our modern context? Well, in our modern context, what it would often look like would be someone who gets the gospel right says, yeah, Jesus, the sinless son of God, lived, died, and rose again for sinners, and therefore on that basis, being a gay Christian is okay. There are people like that. I could give you names right now of prominent leaders, especially in the ELCA, it's the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, who, yeah, they understand law gospel and they preach it. And they are they thems. They're preaching the truth of the gospel but making wrong, false conclusions on the basis of it as a cover-up for sin. And this is worse. This is more heinous than the, the church that is just openly against the gospel and openly against the word of God, where they stand up and they read it and they say, okay, well, we know it says this, but that's not true. That didn't happen. Jesus was a myth. There are even churches, there's a church about four blocks from here that at one point had an atheist for a pastor. That is less sinful, that is less grievous, just to have someone stand up and read the Bible and say, I know it says that, but it's not true, than someone who stands up and reads it and says, yeah, that's true, and therefore, on the basis of this, let's brag about our sin. Because at least the one everybody in the whole world knows, like, that's not even a church, that's not even Christian, they don't preach the gospel, they don't have any truth there at all. But on the other hand, 
that one that is preaching 50, 60% truth, they're able to lure people in. People actually go to hear them at conferences, buy their books, listen to their podcasts, because they are saying some true things. So verse 2 addresses those who approve of the sin. Uh, The the church should have confronted it, but instead they praise this egregious sin. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. So there's the offender, those who approve. Thirdly, those who confront. The one who confronts. It's the Apostle Paul. The church should have dealt with this. This is not a confusing situation. It's not overly complicated. You should have just said no. Someone should have said no, but they didn't. So the Apostle Paul has to do it. And he's not, he's not even there. With authority comes responsibility. That's what leadership is all about. Someone has to say no. Someone has to say, you're not doing that. So we would say the buck stops here. Leadership requires a willingness to stand up and speak up, to put a stop to the moral insanity, to defend the innocent, to confront the wicked. And in Paul's case, he was the Apostle Paul. He was the one who planted the church. He had a number of specific God-given reasons for why he was dealing with this situation. But let me assure you, there were a lot of other people who should have dealt with this before it even got to him. It is to their shame that they had to get a letter in the mail to confront them to deal with this. There were church leaders around, but they didn't. This brings us in uh, in verses 3 through 5, proper judgment. I just read verse 3. Verse 4 says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This proper judgment is also what we would call church discipline. Church discipline. Please recognize that Matthew 7, 1, which says, judge not, judge not lest you be judged, etc., and so on. Judge not is not the final word on the matter of judgment. It is not even the actual message of Matthew 7, 1. The message, do not judge, is not an accurate interpretation of what is stated in that text. You have to keep reading. There is such thing as proper judgment. And we have a, a case study on that here in our text today. Paul is calling the Corinthian church to a proper judgment, to properly judging and dealing with and addressing and confronting this grievous sin in their congregation. And that's what we today call church discipline. We're not going to spend the entire sermon talking about church discipline, but please be aware that church discipline is not just step three. Church discipline is not just excommunication. Church discipline is not just kicking someone out of the church, but church discipline is actually, that word discipline is tied to discipleship, and it is teaching, it is instruction, it is correction. It is not a bad thing when someone comes to you and says, hey, there's this pretty obvious thing in your life, and it's not in alignment with scripture, and Um, 
could you stop doing that? That's a good thing when that happens. We literally pay people to do that for us. We pay coaches to tell us, throw the ball this way, not that way. Swing, your, swing the bat like this, not like lift this way a certain way. No, face this direction, not that direction when you're using the treadmill. We pay people to tell us what to do and what not to do. <laughs> it took a while to get that one. Um, so we pay people to instruct us, to correct us when we're doing things wrong. And it's good when they do, because until we get things right, we're not able to grow and to progress and to receive the good that we need when we're doing things poorly. And all of that, all of that training, that instruction, that teaching, that's, that's a good thing. But in, in our modern world, we've just often used the word church discipline to exclusively refer to the final step, which it is, but there's more than that. Now, in this text, with this situation here, secondly, we have Paul's apostolic authority in the judgment. As the Apostle Paul, as the one who is commissioned and sent by Jesus through the local church to go across the region, planting and establishing churches and even authoring, writing scripture, Paul has a unique authority that we don't have. He has the authority to call up some random church, which in his case is not a random church. It's, it's a church that's under his authority and tell them, y'all need to stop. Stop this thing that you're doing. I don't have that authority for uh, you know, some church in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. Or, like, sure, I could call someone that I know and say, hey, why are you doing that? But I don't actually have authority over them. In the same way that some random other church doesn't have authority over us. They can't call us and say, hey, um, why are you using this Bible instead of that Bible in your preaching? It's, they don't have that authority. But when churches and pastors try to exert that type of authority, they're trying to act like they are apostles or like they're in an apostolic type of denomination or what we would call in technical terms an Episcopalian structure with a bishop. Not all Episcopal churches have the word Episcopal on them, by the way. Where you have a bishop who's in charge of multiple churches and he views, the leader views himself as a pope figure with authority to call various churches and tell them, hire this person, fire that person. Sadly, there are, frankly, many Baptist churches that function this way, where there is a Pope-type leader in a region, and that lead pastor will call various churches and tell them to fire so-and-so because he criticized critical race theory on social media. This happens here in the New York City area. Paul has genuine apostolic authority and he is wielding it appropriately to judge true sin. And it is right for him to do this. We know that it is right for him to do this. It says, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this judgment, this church discipline is coming with the approval of Christ himself. 
The idea that Jesus is the nice one and God the Father is the mean one and that God the Father is the one who judges and Jesus is the one who accepts. Jesus affirms us. God judges us. That's not true. That's not accurate. Remember, the Bible tells us that at the end of the age, Jesus is the one who will judge the world. And in the meantime, local churches are to practice proper judgment through church discipline under the authority and under the approval of Jesus. Well, how do we know what has his approval or not his, not has, not, doesn't have his approval? We have a book that tells us. So Jesus' approval is there in this judgment of this sin. Verse 5 speaks then of the final step of judgment, this excommunication. Verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This final step of judgment, this final step of church discipline is removing the offending person from the congregation, telling them, sorry, you're not welcome here. You cannot come back until you repent. You have to leave. There's the door. You're not welcome. So you're sending them out into the wilderness. They're being turned away from the visible, physical presence of the local church body. They're handed over to Satan. And it says, for the destruction of the flesh. Why? For this purpose, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The goal of this is restoration. It is to be a wake-up call to get the person's attention. Why? Because we don't want him to go to hell. And in this type of situation, this is a person who professes to be a Christian, but sure doesn't look like they're a Christian. And so we are removing them from the body of believers because they don't seem to be a Christian. They bear no fruit of the Spirit. They're not not visibly, as far as we can tell, even a Christian. So we're removing them. And this is to serve as a wake-up call for their salvation, that they would, in fact, be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. The motive for this judgment is not anger. It's not hatred. It's not, oh, because I'm mad at you because you won't listen to me, though you may be mad at them because they won't listen to you. That's irrelevant. It's not a personal thing. It's not about a grudge from one leader to a person in the church. That has nothing to do with it. But rather, it is out of a desire, it is out of love and a desire to see them delivered and restored from the sin. And so a word of warning for those who are or may someday be pastors or elders, that if you are tempted to kick someone out of the church because you are angry with them because they're annoying, don't do that. That doesn't have Jesus' authority behind it. That doesn't have the heart of Christ behind it. So you have to be able to tell the difference between one who is weak and frail and sinful, but trying and stumbling their way towards Christ, and the person who is intentional and malicious and deceptive and lying, manipulating. The motive for this judgment is a desire to see them delivered from this sin and restored to Christ. 
So this is point number one, unholy people. Point number two, holy God. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is not holding back. He's not, he's not pulling punches. He says, your bragging is not good. Your glorying is not good. The basis for Paul's pronouncement that their glorying is not good is derived from the moral law of God, which is a reflection of God's nature and character. Why is it not good? What's the basis or the standard by which we would look at something and say, that's bad? Well, it's God himself. And so the glory and holiness of God shines forth through his law. It shows us his righteous standard. And compared to that, we see actions and conducts and we say, that is not good. The brightness of the glory of God shines into the darkness of man's sinful rebellion, his pride, his sexual anarchy. And that light exposes sin. In this verse, it is not just the man's sin, but it is the pride about the man's sin. Great irony, we have a whole month here in New York called Pride Month. It's not just the sin, which should be shameful, but it's taking sin, which should be shameful, and making it a point of pride. Now take that New York situation, stamp a cross on it with some Jesus language, and that's the type of thing that's happening in our story today. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, for those who are new to Christianity or the church, this leaven situation might be uh, foreign or unknown. Uh, Leaven is an additive when you are baking that you put into bread to make it rise. This is a reference to Passover. You see, if you're baking bread and you want it to rise, you put the leaven in it, but you have to let it rise. You have to give it time, and then it has to be set in the right temperature. And so in like Florida, where I grew up, we would put the bread with the leaven in it in the car, in the sun, so it could sit there and get hot so that it would rise. And it had to take a certain amount of time for that to happen. So that whole situation, that whole process is not fast. Now, during the time of the Passover, the Israelites are preparing to make their break to run out of Egypt and they don't have time to sit around and wait for the bread to rise. So they leave the leaven out of it, they make their unleavened bread, and throw it in the oven, bake it, and get on with their evening. That's what's being referenced. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You don't have to use a huge amount to get this bread to rise. No, just a little bit will do. And what happens? Well, it spreads throughout the entire... um, It it spreads throughout the entire loaf. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. 
See, that's the nature of these things. That's the nature of this type of sin. It's contagious. It spreads. It's not even just this sin, but sins in general that spread. We referenced it during the communion hour, but a a grumbling, complaining attitude spreads. One person's not happy. They're not happy till everybody else isn't happy. So they start grumbling and complaining because misery loves company. They want more people to join them in that mindset. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, in this situation, the meaning of leaven is that it represents sin. It doesn't always represent sin in every situation in the Bible, but in this context, it represents sin. And that is this sin that is pervading and spreading throughout the congregation like a little bit of leaven spreads throughout the whole piece of bread and affects the entire loaf. Therefore, verse 7, the instruction is to remove the old leaven, that you may have a new lump since you, are, you truly are unleavened. This is incredible to me. It is astonishing to me how Paul is so careful to continue to affirm and encourage these Corinthian Christians, even though they're so messed up. They're bragging about this man's sin, but he's saying, no, you truly are unleavened. In other words, you're actually Christians. He's not quick to throw them to cast the entire church into hell. Why is that? Well, this is a church that he planted. He knows their doctrine. He even knows these people. Surely baptized some of them. Taught their leaders. Yet they've been caught up in this sin the sin of a gospel distortion and abuse of the gospel and twisting it in order to affirm a very evil sin. But nevertheless, he believes, he recognizes that, no, these people, this is a Christian church. But because it is a Christian church, you have to purge the old leaven out. Which brings us then into... Verse 7b, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. If you're wondering, Andy, your point number two is holy God. Where's this holy God thing? Well, it's first off, it's in verse 6 because he says your glorying is not good. And the basis for the glory not being good is because of the glory of God, which is pure. And it shows that they're sinful. So it's the holiness of God, which is the standard, so it's there, but also our holy God is seen in verse 7b because Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate, and he is holy. He, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, the one who came into this world to live, to die, to rise again on the third day. This one is our Passover. And he was sacrificed for us. Now, why was he our Passover? Because he was sinless, because he was holy. That's why, that's how, that's, you remember the Passover? What were they supposed to do besides the bread thing? 
They have the, the blood. Okay, so what is the blood all about? They, they need a lamb. What kind of lamb? They need a spotless lamb that fits a certain description. It's, it's not just any old lamb will do. No, it's a certain type. And that lamb takes the place of their firstborn son. If they don't kill the lamb and put its blood over the doorpost, if, if the angel of the Lord coming through doesn't see the blood, he's going in and he will kill the firstborn. But if he does see the blood of the slaughtered lamb, he passes over. It's not, as I told this illustration from D.A. Carson, it's not about the confidence. It's not about how sure you are of this. No, it's about whether or not the blood is there. Jesus is our spotless lamb. He is holy God incarnate. He is our Passover lamb. So because Jesus is our Passover lamb, that's the reason why Christians are called to live a certain type of life. A life of holiness. A life which purges out the old leaven. Which brings us to verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, what is going on here? Well, he's referencing malice and wickedness. Remember the Corinthian conflict. Remember the hatred, the bitterness, the animosity within that Corinthian church. That's the malice. The word malice, like malicious. So you want to keep the feast? You want to worship the Lord with these celebrations, with these ceremonies and services where you go to not the temple, but to the probably a home church gathering, possibly a synagogue that they took over. How are you going to keep the feast? Well, it's not with the old leaven, not with your old way, not with malice but also not with wickedness, wickedness, not with sexual immorality. Remember the religious rituals of the Corinthians. The religious rituals of the Corinthians was temple prostitution. The way to worship the gods is through illicit sex. There was that temple on top of the mountain that I showed you weeks ago. On top of that mountain, that temple had a, a thousand prostitutes. So if you're going to go worship, I think it was Apollo or something. If you're going to go worship that god, that's what that means you're going to do. So that's their religious ritual. Now, the religious ritual of the Corinthian Christians was conflict. So we're going to go to church. We're Corinthians. It's, we're very religious people. So how do we worship? Well, we go and we fight with each other. It's warfare within the church. Someone says, well, that was a good sermon from Paul. And someone else says, wasn't as good as Apollos. Someone says, Jesus was better. Everywhere in everything, there's conflict within the Corinthian church. And that's just how they do church. That's their way of keeping the feast. That's their way of celebrating not secular Corinthian religion, but, or pagan Corinthian religion, but Corinthian Christianity is marked by malicious conflict. But God is calling them something better, and that is the religious ritual of sincerity and truth. So if you want these in parallel fashion, number one, the religious rituals of the Corinthians was temple to prostitution. Number two, the religious rituals of the Corinthian Christians was conflict. Number three, the religious rituals that God is calling them to is sincerity and truth. Verse 
That's what God wants from them. Don't be looking at each other lying and saying, oh, I love you so much. And then you go back and gossip about them and don't do that. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Our holy God. God in flesh. This brings us then into point three, holy church. I write to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So this seems to be a reference to his previous letter. His first which they misunderstood. Verse 10 says, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world, or with the covetousness, covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. What we find here in our text is an almost unaddressed teaching or a doctrine, and it would be the call to separation. The call to separation. Now, this is a biblical concept, but it is... Today, just as often misunderstood as in the Corinthian context, he's saying, you are not supposed to be associating with certain people. You have to separate from them. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about those random Corinthians. I'm talking about the people who claim to be Christians. He's not calling them to separate from the world. God is not calling us to move away, to set up communes in Western United States. That is not the solution to the depravity of this world. The Benedict option is not the option for evangelicals. God calls us actually, in contrast to that, not to flee from the big evil dark dark city, but to actually run into the place of darkness with the light of the gospel. In case you haven't heard of it recently, it's called the Great Commission. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to be missionary, but everybody is called to obedience to the Great Commission in some way. So if you're not going, who are you going to pay to go? You have no money and you can't physically go. Who are you going to pray for? Who are you going to pray that God would raise up? And how is that going to impact and shape the way you think and the way you talk and what you say to people? I wish if there was, if I were king for a day, if this was, what do I call it? Uh, Andy's dream world? If this was Andy's dream world, where everything goes the way I think it ought to go, I would magically, with a snap of my finger, change the minds of every single pastor and Christian in this country that I know, so that when I see them, they don't say, hey, when are you moving to Phoenix? Hey, are you done with that New York thing yet? When are you moving back to Florida? It makes me want to pull my hair out. It makes me want to say, wait a second. The goal of the Christian life is not to see how safe you can be. 
The goal of the Christian life is to preach the gospel to every creature and to see people saved and baptized and added to his church. This is basic stuff. And we used to talk about it a lot more back in like the 90s and the early 2000s, and then somehow everything just got distracted, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it was something about politics. God calls us to run into the darkness with the light of the gospel. There's a reason Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 and following, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. No, 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 Andy, I have a great plan, okay? We're going to get as far away as we can, but we're just going to start a really great internet ministry. That's how we're going to reach the people. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't do that. No. Further, also, we're not going to live as far as we physically can away and then just like come every now and then. I heard of a church planning strategy where they're like, do you know how expensive the rent is in New York City? It's very expensive. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we're going to fly to New York every weekend. And we're going to plan a church that way. And we'll still be thousands of dollars ahead per month. I literally have heard of that before. That is not a biblical method of missions. How are you going to be the light of the world if you just have your flashlight, you flip it on every now and then? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. I can rephrase it. You are the light of your workplace. You are the light of your neighborhood, your apartment building, your baseball team, your gym, your conversations with your trainers and your friends and your enemies and your coworkers. That, when it's you and you're actually a Christian, you're bringing light into those situations. If you're not bringing light, you're probably not the light of the world. And you probably need to get saved. Verse 16 says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It needs to be said, the Christian has three enemies. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in my observation, different types of Christians tend to emphasize one of these and neglect the other two, broadly speaking. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, who emphasizes the world? In my experience, it's fundamentalists. The world is bad. We emphasize the world. We emphasize separation. The flesh, who emphasizes the flesh? Well, it's reformed people. You know, read John Owen, mortify that flesh. Fundamentalists don't read John Owen. They just don't. And then the devil. Now, who emphasizes the devil? Charismatics. So, you don't find the charismatics reading either John Owen or some fundamentalist book about separation. But in fact, the Christian is to recognize all three as his great enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to be alert to all three. 
aware that all three are real and all three need to be addressed and to be dealt with and confronted in, in, in certain ways. But that's the subject of another sermon. So we have the call to separation, verses 9 and 10. Secondly, not talking about separation from the world, but from ungodly, quote, Christians, verses 11 through 13. Not saying to come out of the world, but as people who are in the world living as holy people. And drawing a line between yourself and those who claim to be Christians who are living as though they are not Christians. So look in verses 11 through 13. For now have I written to you, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So we have this list, six items, sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner. So you call yourself a Christian, you're embracing these certain sins, saying, yeah, this is who I am. It's part of me. It's my thing. So a person who calls himself a Christian but is bragging about his sexual exploits, bragging to the guys about his Tinder dates. Don't even eat with such a person. In fact, you need to say, stop. The covetous Christian, the idolater, the one who worships idols. Like the Corinthians, they had physical idols, like statues. Did you know that in Christian missions, what we call missiology, there's a certain strategy of missions called the insider movement. And the idea is that when you go to, I don't know, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, places where it's not exactly approved or legal to be a Christian, what you can do is you can just be a secret Christian. So you can continue being a Muslim, going to the, to the mosque, participating in all the, the liturgy of the mosque, bowing down, saying the, the prayers. But in your heart, deep down inside, you, you really mean Jesus. And then in your home, you're, you're praying to Jesus. The Bible says don't do that. Don't continue in idolatry. Don't be practicing witchcraft as a Christian. Do not go seek out fortune tellers and palm readers and the tarot card readers and all the things that here in New York, like they're just on every street corner. When you become a Christian, you need to turn away from all of those things. You have to let go of new age, let go of these, these alternate religions. You ever heard of Enneagram? Christian in the Enneagram? That's, not, that's a contradiction in terms. You should not be an idolater. Do not hang out with idolatrous Christians, Christians who worship idols and false gods. Number four, reviler. I looked up the word revile. It means to assail with scornful or abusive language. Remember the thief next to Jesus who mocked him as he hung on the cross? That's reviling. Someone who mocks him. A Christian who has that type of 
mouth is someone to separate from. Someone who attacks people with scornful or abusive language. I'm not saying to all of a sudden become Mr. or Ms. Softy and that you never say anything bad about anything bad, but when you speak and when you confront or when you correct, what are you saying and how are you saying it? In other words, if your, your language sounds kind of like an angry cab driver who just got cut off by a bicycle delivery man at a stoplight because the cab driver wanted to run that yellowish red light and then the bike jumps through in front of me and he slams on his horn, hits the brakes and starts screaming at him with the most colorful language that I wouldn't say here or anywhere. But if that's you, you're a reviler and you need to repent. And if you have friends who call themselves Christians who are revilers, you should confront them and say that is not appropriate for a Christian. Number five, the drunkard. I've said this before, but in New York, the New York Christian culture, you would think that the command was to drink as much as possible. We can't have a social gathering without like 18 different types of alcohol. Maybe you've never seen it, but I've seen it. And then everybody's like secretly in AA. Extortioner. When I saw this one, I'm like, what is going on in this church? Extortioning Christians? (laughs) I'm a Christian. I just swindle people. I'm a Christian, but I extort people. Because extortion is worse than swindling. Swindling is like a sort of a nice, deceptive way of getting money from people. But extortion is like threats and stuff. It's like, if you don't give me a lot of money, I'm going to blast all of your secrets on social media, and I'll put it in the church newsletter, and everybody, even your great Aunt Mary, is going to know about what you did four years ago. So pay up, buddy. That's extortion. (laughs) See, we need to recognize that sin is bad. Sin is evil. And the problem is we, especially if we're like insulated in our Christian life and you just kind of like, I don't know, either a pastor who sits at home all day working on church-related things in his home office, or your work-from-home person who doesn't really interact with lost people too much, or you've been a Christian for your entire life, or you're a stay-at-home mom, or also, it's easy to forget the sinfulness of sin. Because the worst thing you're dealing with on a daily basis is your four-year-old's attitude, which could be pretty bad, but it's not, not like nothing like this. But we need to recognize the sinfulness of sin, and that God calls us to separate from people who claim to be Christians who live in practicing these types of things and so much so that it says don't even eat with them. Now, this might present a problem if you're very much into um, theology and Reformation theology or your own personal experience or reading the Word of God because we find that upon conversion to Christianity, you don't become perfectly holy. So what? What are we doing then? Because, Andy, I've got this problem in my mind. Like, sometimes I want things a little too much that I shouldn't be wanting, and I'm finding myself being covetous, and I'm sitting here being like, man, I would love to have a car, and I don't have a car. And so 
let me just go scroll around on the car shopping websites. And then you find yourself occupied with this and it's all you're thinking about. And then you're coveting that thing. Does this mean I need to like announce myself for church discipline because I like to shop too much? Well, hold that thought. Pause for a second and consider these things. At salvation, the Christian actually begins a war with sin. And that war with sin did not exist before the person got saved. The unbeliever can fight against sin or bad behavior for worldly or fleshly reasons, but those reasons why they're trying to not sin, those are not God-honoring reasons. That war that is begun with sin is not fully achieved in this life. We soundly reject, we reject as false, the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. The idea, Christian perfectionism, is the idea that a Christian can or will or should become sinlessly perfect in this life. We expect when we get saved, we're going to never sin again. That's Christian perfectionism. So, uh, Todd White, I think, is the name of the guy with the long curly, or not curly, but the dreads and stuff. And he's like, oh, no, I haven't sinned in like, years. <laughs> and he, with a straight face, will tell people, I haven't sinned in you know, eight years or ten years or whatever it may be. That's an example of what we call Christian perfectionism. We reject that. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Nevertheless, well, then read 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the Christian does have remaining and dwelling sin within them, yes. But a Christian is someone who has been predestined by God. They have been elected by God. They've re- received predestination or election, which is the same thing. They have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. See Ephesians 1, 4 for that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He has chosen us for this holiness, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he choose us? Because it makes him happy. The good pleasure of his will. He wants to. That's why he did it. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. How are we accepted? Well, we're accepted in Jesus, the beloved, for the purpose of the glory of his grace. So the Christian is one who has been chosen by God. They have received this predestination, this election that took place before they existed. Secondly, the Christian has been converted. The Christian experiences conversion. This is responding to the message of the gospel in repentance and faith. Remember Romans 10.9. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So a Christian is someone who has been converted. They have experienced conversion. Thirdly, a Christian is someone, this is not in a proper uh, ordo salutis order. So if you're thinking like, oh, which, I'm not worried about a chart right now. A Christian is one who's been justified. 
A Christian is one who has been justified. Justified means to be legally declared righteous, to be counted righteous in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. Do you remember what that says? I'm trying to bring it to my mind right now. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That we would be counted righteous in Christ. Now, part of my brain freeze for a second was because I was thinking about something else. And that other thing was the reference to Andy's dream world. Andy's dream world is where everything goes the way I would like it to go. In Andy's dream world, I would love for all of you to know the Bible well enough that if I said, where does the Bible address the topic of predestination or election? I would love for you to be able to give me three references. You know, just book and chapter. For you to say Ephesians 1, Romans 9. And if I say, hey, what about the Old Testament? I'd love for you to say Deuteronomy 7. I'd love to be able to say, all right, where, where, where are some passages that address conversion? What are some passages that teach about justification? And for me to be able to ask you this and you have an answer, not because you're an elder candidate, just because you're a Christian. And you're a Christian who tries to let their light shine before others that, that, that they can be a witness to the gospel back to our thing. Number four, adoption. A Christian is one who has been adopted into the family of God. What is that? It's being legally brought into the family of God, like a court setting. The judge slams down the hammer and says, it's done. You've been adopted. And so now this child is a part of the family. Well, where does the Bible talk about that? First John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Next, regeneration. Regeneration, which is to be given new life, which is, as Henry Skogel's book says, the life of God in the soul of man. It is the new birth from John 3. It is being born again. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Why? Because you don't have any. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us according to his mercy. That's why he makes us alive. You've heard Sproul referencing the, the swimmer who's in the sea. Well, it's not the one splashing around saying, help, help, save me. It's the corpse at the bottom of the sea. And that's the one that the lifeguard jumps into the sea and drags this corpse up, puts it on the beach, and then breathes into him the breath of life. That's regeneration. Next. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, it is the immersion or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which happens to every believer at salvation. When you are a Christian, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit. John 7, 37 says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's what took place at Pentecost. Every Christian has been baptized in the Spirit, not just those who have some sort of uh, ecstatic experience or those who have a second blessing. Every Christian is one who, ha who believes in Jesus and because of that, out of their heart flows rivers of living water. 
That's why their life is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness. That's not just for like the really nice old lady in the back of the church and then the rest of us live in malice and, and envy and hatred and all those things. No. No, every Christian has experienced the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Number seven, union with Christ. Made one with Christ. They're united with Christ. Where, give me a book and a chapter where you can find union with Christ. Can I get uh, Romans, someone? Romans 6. Romans 6. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We're not just united to Christ in his death, but also we get his resurrection too. He rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, union with Christ, that the body of sin may be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself, consider yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Christian is one who has experienced union with Christ. Next, the Christian is one who experiences sanctification. Sanctification is being made like the Son of God by the Spirit of God through the Word of God for the glory of God. So what's the best verse on sanctification in the whole Bible, according to me? It's in Corinthians. Do we have a guess? 2 Corinthians 3.18 which says something along these lines. And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are transformed into that same image from glory to glory, even by the Holy Spirit. So how do we get sanctified? We get sanctified by looking to Jesus. How does that happen? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Next, glorification. The Christian will experience glorification. That is the certainty that we will one day be made finally and fully free from all sin. But when does that happen? It happens when we see Jesus face to face. This is 1 John 3, 2 through 3, which says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. So this doctrine of glorification is the idea that when we die or when he returns, we see him face to face and we are instantly transformed. You remember the the heart rate chart that represents our spiritual life and our growth? That's when we achieve perfection. When we see him face to face, that's when he glorifies us. So the Bible teaches that a Christian truly has experienced a transformation. This means the legal paperwork in heaven went through. The the justification, that record transfer, the documents, the documents were filed successfully. The credit transfer took place. The adoption was in fact finalized and the resurrection of Jesus was accepted. We have been given a new nature. We have a new name, a new family, a new identity. We have a new master and a new life and these things are real. They're real. 
our holy God has sent his holy son, the one of whom angels cry out, holy, 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 into this world. He sent this one into this world to live, to die, and to rise again, to redeem for himself people who are not good, but in fact, people that are sinful, wretched, pitiable, blind, naked, spiritually dead. And to call this assembly of sinful people to himself and to raise them from the dead, to call them his own treasured possessions and to make them his holy church. So on this basis, this is why God calls his people out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our holy God has called his church unto holiness and he provides the way of holiness through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard something so wonderful? He's not putting it on you to figure it out. No, he actually sent his son to make it happen. So let us give thanks to him. Father, we pray that you would help us. You are a holy God and you have called us to be a holy church. And one of the means of grace that you've given to us is this fact of confrontation of sin and correction and calling people out of darkness to walk in your marvelous light. We pray that the lost would be saved and that the saved would be sanctified through the power of your spirit by your word. We thank you for the time that we have to open your word and to consider it. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.